seat first. Come on, give yourselves a hand for being at church today. Very excited whether you join us online, on person, City First, anywhere. God behind bars, we love you very much. Cape Coral and everywhere else. Well, listen, uh, we're finishing the series Red Skies, Signs of the Times. It's a little bittersweet because I actually really like this series. But we have a brand new series coming next week that you're going to not want to miss. And uh, we're going to talk uh, a, a lot about that a little bit later. But here's the thing. Um, we are in this series, we're talking about discerning kind of the times, being people who understand the times and then knowing what to do. And if it's your very first week and every every single week we have, you know, brand new guests that are with us, so I want to make sure that they are caught up. We are talking about where Jesus in Matthew 16 was confronted by some religious leaders. These are people that don't like him very much. And they are badgering him. And it says they pressed him to prove himself to them. And Jesus then told them, I ha you have a saying, red skies at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailor take warning. You find it easy enough to forecast the weather. Why can't you read the signs of the times? And what are you saying to these people is he's saying, listen, you can forecast the weather, but you don't know what's going on around you in culture. And what that really infers to us is in 2023, as followers of Jesus, we can't just kind of hide from culture. We need to know what's happening in culture and then ask for wisdom from God to know how to live. And so, um, you know, last month, some exciting things have been happening, not just here at City First, but actually around the nation. And uh, recently, at some universities around the nation, especially Asbury University in Kentucky, there have been some students that have decided to run after God, to seek God with a new passion. And uh, a chapel service, for those of you that maybe don't know about it, a chapel service over a month ago was just a normal chapel service at this Christian university, and all of a sudden, it just kind of continued like the students wanted to keep worshiping and keep praying and and it continued non-stop for over two weeks like literally they just kept on having the chapel service over and or canceled classes and things like that and pretty soon other universities not just christian universities but but also other universities started doing the same uh, you know a few of them a handful of them and it got international attention in fact, even some national news outlets like CNN and Fox News picked up what was going on in Kentucky and reported on it. And with the help of social media, uh, people began to take notice and, and actually started traveling there, even from other nations, like people were traveling there. I've had a lot of people in the last month ask me my opinion on that. Uh, in fact, last night I was over at somebody's house and we were having like a, you know, a get together and a bunch of people were over there for dinner and, and uh, one person and ask me, hey, have you heard about this Kentucky thing, this Asbury University? What do you think about it? I get asked this a lot here in the last few weeks. Well, my answer to it is this. Anytime anyone decides that they're going to worship God, they're going to pray more, they're going to seek Jesus at a new level, it's a good thing. Does that make sense? There's no downside to that. So it's a good thing what's going on right now. Secondly, I think we need to define what some people are calling this movement. They're calling it a revival that's happening on these campuses. Well, let's define what revival is. Because a lot of people use that term, but what does revival mean? Revival, the word revival, just look at it just as the word, it means revive. It means that something was alive and then went 
dormant or maybe even dead, and now it is coming back to life. It is being revived, revival, all right? So that denotes this. Revival, listen, is primarily, not solely, but primarily for the Christian. Now, you may have never thought about that before, but if you don't follow God, there's nothing to revive. If you follow God, that means something at one point, you know, let me use some terms here that are sometimes church terms, but you were on fire, and now it's just smoldering ashes, and you need to be reignited again. You see, revival means that something is being revived, and it kind of echoes 2 Chronicles 7.14, which is a book in the Old Testament. It says this, then if my people who are called by my name, so again, God is speaking to his people. He's not speaking to everybody. He's saying those people that follow me that are called by my name. In fact, turn the person next to you and say called. We're all called. If we're followers of Jesus, we're called. Remember that. All right, called by my name, what will they do? They'll humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven. In other words, God's not deaf. He will hear from heaven and he will forgive their sins and restore their land. It is really four parts to that verse. There's humility. There is prayer. In other words, talking to God. There is a seeking after God. It's intentional. It's not by mistake. It's seeking. And lastly, there's a turning. It's a turning away from things that are not of God to God himself. So I would say this. The Christian is the one that experiences revival. Then when people who maybe are far from faith see a Christian who has a fire inside of them and an authentic faith, they want that. And so, yes, then people get saved. Does that make sense? Starts in the Christ follower, impacts those people around them. In other words, people that are far from faith are like, I, I want what they have. I want that authentic faith. I don't want religion. People don't want religion. Religion is man-made. It is ways to make God happy, we think, through doing things. That is not what we're about here. We are about a relationship with God. That when you're revived and there's a fire inside of you, people notice. Your coworkers, your fellow students, your neighbors, they're like, there's something different. It echoes Acts chapter 2. If you read Acts chapter 2, this is a book in the New Testament. And after Jesus ascends to heaven, his followers get into what is called an upper room. And there's about 120 of them. And they're there praying. And they're seeking God. And they're worshiping. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit fell and filled them. Then what happened? After they were revived, they went out into the streets of Jerusalem. Peter, the apostle Peter, preached. And 3,000 people people were saved, the Bible says, in one day. So again, revival happens in the believer, and guess what? It trickles out into culture, and people say, I want what they have. So what is happening right now at Asbury University and other universities, I think is actually a sign. Remember, we're talking signs of the times. I think it's a sign. It's a sign that God will listen and respond to his people when they cry out for more of him. In other words, in 2023, America is not too far gone. Your city, your community, your neighborhood, your business, your family is not too far gone. God still listens 
when his people cry out to him like they did at that university. In fact, I think what it also shows is there's a hunger for that. There's a hunger for that. And it doesn't have to take a 24-hour worship service. Can I just say that for a moment? We don't have to create a 24-hour worship service. Revival can happen anytime between you and God. Any place, anywhere, it could even happen this morning. You see, it can happen at any time. In short, God is ready to move. Are we ready to be moved? That's really the question. God is ready to move. Are we ready to be moved? Well, if we are, then here are our marching orders. What we do, we, we humble ourselves, humility. We pray, we seek him with intentionality, and we turn from, Bible says, our wicked ways and to him. But can I say this? That turning can be difficult because it means you live differently. That's what's so different about it, because turning means you don't live the same. You live different. I remember back uh, 30 plus years ago when I was in college, um, about two years into college is, is when I found faith in Jesus. And, uh, and so um, I was at a youth and young adult retreat in a, a little town that's about 45 minutes from here called Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And I'd gone on a retreat. I got asked by my friends to go. I didn't know what it was. Like some of you today, you're showing up to church. Maybe you're watching online or at a City First watch party. And you're like going... I don't know what's going on right now. What am I doing here, you know? And, and that was me. I, w I went to this thing, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. And, and I went to this retreat, and I found myself saying, Jesus, I want you to become the leader and the forgiver of my life, my Lord and my Savior. I came home. I came home. And when I came home, uh, I started to get, you know, phone calls from all my friends about going out the, you know, the weekend and getting hammered like we always did. And, you know, in between weekends, we'd get hammered. And I mean, like, it was just like, they were calling me, Jer, where are we going tonight? What bar? What, what you know, frat? Where are we doing? You know? And, uh, and I remember having to tell them, I was like, hey, listen, you know what? I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. Um, I, I gave my life to Jesus, you know? I don't want to go out and get hammered every night kind of a thing. And I remember that they were, uh, they made fun of me. I mean, you know, some of them did, not all of them, but they, they made fun of me. They're like, what? What are you talking about? You're, oh, you're religious now? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, I remember a few days later, I met with my girlfriend, and we had been kind of dating on and off for a long time. And, and I met with her, and I told her, I was like, you know what, I just don't think that um, we should be in this relationship. And I kind of was, you know, beating around the bush. Again, I mean, I would only given my life to Jesus like a week before that. And I'm trying to explain to her, like, I just don't think we should be together because I know you're not very fond of, you know, the whole, like, idea of, of Jesus and faith. And, and I have kind of decided to do that. And I still remember she said this. She looked at me and she goes, right in the eye, she goes, you're not getting spiritual on me, are you? That's literally what she said. And I was like, uh, I didn't know what to say, you know what I mean? And, uh, and, 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 you know, we, we decided that that night, or mainly I decided that night, that we were, we were going to break up. And now, listen, before I sound like I was some great man of faith and power, I was not. Um, I got done explaining to her that we should break up, and then, and then we made out. You know what I mean? And that, uh, that, that probably sent some mixed signals. <laughs> we, did, we did end up a week later, though, really breaking up. Um, and, uh, and again, I wasn't perfect. None of us are, okay? Uh, but, but I will say this, that after that, for the next weeks and months after that, 
uh, you know, some of my friends, they made fun of me and such. And Now listen, before this sounds like it's a big sad story, it's not. It's not a sad story. Because when I compare the price I paid for my faith compared to what Jesus did for me and compared to what first century Christians went through, when you declared that you were a Christian, it was basically a death wish, all right? I'm telling you, the price I paid was really small, really small compared to what other people throughout the centuries have paid for their faith. But I'm just saying this, that there's another sign of our times. Not only does God want to move, are we willing to be moved, not only is he moving and he's hungry, he's listening from heaven, but on top of that, the sign is, is this, you know, if you are called by his name, that calling will cost you something. It really will. It'll cost you something. You say, well, what's a calling? I mean, like, you know, this sounds very like, ooh, calling. What does that mean? Well, all of us are called. If we're following Jesus, we're called by his name. And it's an invitation into a relationship with God and to live a life in keeping with his priorities and his purpose. That's really what a calling is, that you are to be in a relationship with God and then live the way he wants you to live. Can I tell you the biggest enemy of calling is not some big bad thing in our world. I'll tell you what the biggest enemy of calling is, your comfort. That's the biggest area, that's the biggest enemy of, 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 of calling is our comfort because we want to be comfortable and to follow Jesus is a call to abandon comfort is really what it is. I know you're sitting here today, and for those of you that are brand new, you're like going, okay, you, you want me to buy into this faith, and you're telling me it's not going to be comfortable? I'd rather have truth than sales right now, all right? Um, because it's really true. It's not comfortable to always go against the grain. And many times following Jesus means that you do things differently. It's not comfortable when you have a value system that those around you don't. It's not comfortable when you are not you know, just living any way that you want to, but rather you're living the way that God wants you to. In fact, you know what? It is Black History Month, and one of my heroes um, in life is Martin Luther King Jr., and I want you to listen to what he said about comfort. He said this, the ultimate measure of a man is not whether he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. So therefore, you want to you want to live a life that's different, it means you're going to have to stand in moments of challenge and controversy, and that is not comfortable. About three weeks ago or so, uh, Jen and I were at a, a pastor's retreat with a, a pretty small number of pastors from around the nation, and, and uh, we get away every year in the end of January um, for about three days. And one of them that was there that was speaking to us was a guy by the name of Pastor Craig Groeschel. He runs a church called Life Church based out of Oklahoma. Great church, probably one of the biggest churches in the nation. And, um, and he reminded us as pastors that the calling costs. And it wasn't like he was just talking only about the calling of being a pastor. It's just that the calling costs of having faith. And he reminded us about how Paul, the Apostle Paul, was called into ministry and how he had a calling into faith. Now, for those of you that don't know the story, let me recap the story real quick. Paul, who wrote the majority of what we now call the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, these were letters that he wrote to various churches that we've compiled together hundreds of years ago, and we now call it a Bible, all right? Well, Saul uh, was his original name. He was named Paul later, but originally he was born Saul, all right? And before Christ, this is B.C., before Christ, okay? So, so anyway, Saul hated Christians. 
He didn't just dislike Christians, he hated them so much that he basically persecuted them. He had some leadership, and so he would actually authorize them to be like imprisoned, some of them even killed. And he was one day leaving Jerusalem, and he was going to go up to a place called Damascus, and it was a town a little ways away, and he had a list of Christians that lived in that town. He was actually going to go arrest them. That was his agenda. And so he is, you know, going from Jerusalem to Damascus on this road. He had some friends with him, and all of a sudden he has a vision. Jesus shows up right there on the road, the Bible says, and that Jesus shows up. We believe, really, it was the Spirit of Jesus. He was there. By this point, Jesus had ascended to heaven, and Paul, Saul at the time, fell down, and Jesus said to Saul, said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And at that moment was a conversion moment that Saul discovered the real Jesus, gave his life to Jesus. But after that moment, when the vision ended, um, Saul was blind, like he couldn't see. And so his friends that were with him had to take him the rest of the way into town, into Damascus. Well, God had simultaneously spoke to a Christian, this is a Christ follower, in Damascus named Ananias. Now, Saul was very well known as the persecutor of Christians. He was not, like, in the Christian community, he was feared, all right? God speaks to Ananias and says this to Ananias, which I just think is, is pretty ironic. He says, he says, but the Lord said to him, go for Saul, my chosen instrument, to take my message to the Gentiles. So, so he is my chosen inter- instrument to take my message to the Gentiles, meaning the non-Jews, and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must. Now those red words right there, okay? Let's say them together. Ready? One, two, three. Must suffer for my namesake. This is Saul's calling into being a Christian and to spreading the faith. This is his calling into that. And so God is speaking to Ananias and saying, hey, listen, Saul's coming into town. Don't fear him. Um, He's now a follower of me, and I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, uh, last 30-plus years, I've... uh, I've commissioned a lot of people into vocational ministry, all right? As a pastor, like every year, actually, our church, City First Church, has an all-staff retreat, and anyone who's a part of the team that went through their education and credentialing process and all that who's now become a pastor, we have a little special ceremony at the retreat. It's just a really, it's a, it's a sacred moment where, where we give them a Bible and we have them stand up on the stage in front of the staff, and then I bring the pastors around these people, and we lay hands on them, and I pray a prayer of commissioning. And I will tell you in the last 30 years that I've been doing this, literally dozens and dozens, and I could probably say hundreds, hundreds of people that I prayed for commissioning them into ministry, I've never once prayed this. I've never said, God, may they suffer for your name. I've never said that. You know why? Real downer moment if I did that, right? I mean, the person would be like, what? (laughs) They're getting prayed for. I've never done it. I've never done that. I've always been like, God, empower them. Give them, you know, words to speak. Give them power in your name. I mean, I've always preached and and, and said those kind of prayers. But I've never prayed a prayer like, may they suffer for your name. Isn't it interesting that Saul, who would become Paul, who writes the majority of what we now call the New Testament, his commissioning into ministry is, I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for the name of Jesus. 
Now, that's, a, that's an interesting commissioning. I'll be honest with you. Years later, fast forward. Now Saul becomes Paul. Paul has planted all these churches all over the known world in the Roman Empire. This is towards the end of his ministry and the end of his life. He's writing a letter to the church of Corinth. We now call it Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, this is what he explains to the church. He writes this. This is Paul saying, Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. This is not that he went to the beautician and had the lashes put on. That is not what that is, okay? This is, uh, this is 39 lashes. Back in that day, um, there were certain types of punishment, all right? Certain types of punishment. And one form of punishment is that you would be whipped 39 times, one time less than 40. I don't know how they come up with this, but that was a way that they would punish people. And so not only was he whipped 39 times, it happened five times. Five times 39, okay? Three times I was beaten with rods. One time, once I was stoned, again, not what we think of was stoned. This is where they take big rocks and they threw it at him to try to kill him. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent the whole night and day adrift at sea. This is God's person, all right? Shipwrecked. He's in the middle of the sea, adrift through the night. I mean, how many of you that moment would be like, God, you've abandoned me, but God didn't. I have traveled on so many long journeys. I faced danger from rivers and robbers. I faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as the Gentiles. I faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked really hard, worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. He's given a recount now of the years since his calling on the road to Damascus, the years of what he's had to endure for the name of Jesus. Now, I juxtapose that with the fact that every once in a while, somebody says something mean to me on Instagram. Kind of pales in comparison, wouldn't you say? So let me ask this. And I'm not trying to make light of your trials and tribulations and problems and maybe even you yourself are coming underneath, you know, some, you know, a, a form of, a, you know, I'm going to use the word persecution, but I say that really lightly, like people are making fun of you or whatever else. Okay, I want you to compare your problems for a moment to Paul. And probably most of us would say our problems pair or pale in comparison. In fact, I would even say this. There's probably not one of us within the sound of my voice watching right now in the living room or in our auditoriums. There's not one of us that's going to have to go through what Paul went through. I mean, not one of us, right? So, so here's the thing. What's my point? What's the point, Jared? Well, your calling is going to cost you something. It may not cost you what Paul went through, but maybe it will cost you that business deal that you decided to hang on to ethics rather than to do something shady just to get the deal done. It cost you, didn't it? Maybe it costs you a weekend where everyone else is getting hammered out of their minds and you're like, I probably shouldn't do that because I had a problem with that and so I'm not going to go. So it costs you a lonely night. Maybe it costs you in some way, but that cost really probably pales in comparison to what others have gone through. Being called by his name 
will cost you something. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. You ready for the good news? You will be okay. I, I know, I know. You're like, I, I want more than that. No, no, no. You're going to be okay. I promise you. You're going to be okay. Why do I know that? Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he was talking to them about the cost. In fact, this is another instance apart from Paul. This is earlier. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He basically says, he's like, it's going to cost you to follow me. And then he says this in John chapter 16. I've told you all this, meaning it's going to cost you, so that trusting me, you will be unshakable and assured, deeply at peace. Now, wait a minute. If somebody tells me something bad is going to happen to me, that doesn't give me peace. That gives me anxiety. I mean, right? But Jesus said, no, it's going to give you peace. Why? Why? How is that going to give me peace? In this godless world, you might encounter, no, wait, 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 wait. You will, you will encounter and experience difficulties. You're going to continue to experience difficulties. But take heart. Here's where the peace comes. I've conquered the world, Jesus said. In other words, nothing's more powerful than him in us. See, God knows this and he's got your back. And this is going to be like really flip the script for some of you, what I'm going to say right now. The presence of problems does not denote the absence of God. You, you, some of you, you gave your life to Jesus and all hell broke loose and you're like, wait a minute, this is not the way it's supposed to go. Some of you started tithing and the furnace broke. Some of you started like to take a stand for your value systems and you got like more problems. Like you got 99 problems, like a lot, right? (laughs) Sometimes you're doing everything right and everything goes wrong. We many times gauge God's love or his favor or our, you know, how we're doing based upon the problems around us. Well, if so, then Paul was doing terrible and God didn't love him. Okay, no, no, it's quite the opposite. Paul was actually doing the right stuff. He was doing the right things and God loved him like crazy. Sometimes problems don't mean that things are wrong. It means that actually things are right. You know? I mean, <laughs> you know, here, here's the thing. When we come to Jesus... Our problems don't go away. Our sin does. You hear that? And so here's the thing. And there's no better gift than to be able to have a life where the sin record has been erased and we are standing in favor with God and heaven is our home someday, right? We, we just can't pray every hardship away in this life. I'd love to tell you that we could, but we can't. We can't pray and have everything go away that's uncomfortable. I love what the late Eugene Peterson said in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He was the theologian who did the paraphrase for the Message Bible, all right? And this is what he wrote, and he's being tongue-in-cheek here, okay? He's being tongue-in-cheek. He said this, the moment we say no to the world and yes to God, all our problems are solved. Amen? (laughs) And no one said amen, right? All our questions answered, all our troubles over. Nothing can disturb the tranquility of the soul at peace with God. Nothing can interfere with the blessed assurance that all is well between me and my Savior. Nothing 
And no one can upset the enjoyable relationship that has been established by faith in Jesus Christ. We Christians are among that privileged company of persons who don't have accidents, who don't have arguments with our spouses, right, Jen? Amen. All right. Who aren't misunderstood by our peers, whose children do not disobey us. If any of those things should happen, a crushing doubt, a squall of anger, a desperate loneliness, an accident that puts us in the hospital, an argument that puts us in the doghouse, a rebellion that puts us on the defensive, a misunderstanding that puts us in the wrong, it is a sign that something is wrong with our relationship with God or God himself. See, he's being, he's being tongue-in-cheek here. What he's basically pointing out is he's saying, we think that if problems are there, then God doesn't love us and God is not with us. There's something wrong with him or something wrong with us. If you believe that, I have some incredibly good news for you. You're wrong. I know some of you are like, I've never felt so good about being wrong. No, here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. Because if your theology says absence of problems means the presence of God. If that's your theology, it will take only about a New York minute for you to become very disheartened in this life. And you will start questioning everything. So today, I'm free in your mind. Listen, the absence of problems does not mean the presence of God, nor does it mean that if there are problems, that God is absent. It means this. Sometimes problems come because you went to a new level, and now there's a new devil. Do you hear that? You went to a new level, and now there's a new devil. You decided to revive your soul, and now... There's a new enemy that is not happy with the fact that you're no longer complacent, not happy with the fact that you're no longer silent and you're sharing the love of Jesus with us. He likes to keep you under his thumb. And the minute that you remove yourself from that and you decide to take a risk, guess what? You come up against something. You've awoken a giant. But here's the good news. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, which means... That Jesus already conquered the world. In the same way that a calling can cost you, listen to me, a calling can energize and sustain you also. All right? Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians. He says, we've been surrounded and battered by troubles, but we're not demoralized. I mean, he's saying problems are all around us, but hey, listen, we're cool. We're good. We're cool. <laughs> We're not sure what to do, but we know that God knows what to do. Can I get an amen on that? Because half the time, I don't know what I'm doing. We've been spiritually terrorized, but God hasn't left our side. You hear that? We've been thrown down, but we haven't broken. Jesus promises, my grace is sufficient for you. He says, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. I am with you even until the end of the earth. With Jesus, I can do hard things, all right? Now, with that, I think that needs to get in our hearts, not just in our heads. Some of you, that just went in your ears, okay? But I'm telling you, you need to get it in your heart. Like, it's a conviction. So, 
we're going to say this together, this statement. And I want you to, to, to just say it with, with a little fire. You know what I mean? Like a, a little bit of a, like a little fire in your bones, all right? I can do hard things, okay? With Jesus, I can do hard things. So on the count of three, let's say it together, right? One, two, three. With Jesus, I can do hard things. Okay, one more time. With Jesus, I can do hard things. That is so important. With Jesus, you can do hard things. It isn't just I can do hard things. With Jesus, I can do hard things. In fact, we need to look at our problems. We need to look at our sicknesses. We need to look at the things that are standing in our past, the mountains that are in our way, and we need to say, I am willing to endure this for a little while, but I won't, under any circumstance, become a victim because I am not and never will be powerless because I am not alone. Jesus is with me and I will get through. He will get me through. Don't look at your problems and become a victim. Realize that you're a victor. Your circumstances do not have control over you. The Bible says we're controlled by the Spirit of God. So guess what? The problems don't have control. The Spirit of God has control as we close. There's a story that involves Paul, B.C., Saul, okay, and a guy by the name of Stephen. The story is found in Acts chapter 7. This brand new church of Jesus just forms, okay? Remember, Jesus ascended heaven. The 120 go up in the upper room. The Holy Spirit fills them. They come out. 3,000 people get saved. Now we're having church. And, like, it is rocking the city of Jerusalem. People are taking notice. Revival has happened. The Christ followers have been revived. People that are far from faith are giving their life to Jesus. And all of a sudden, the religious leaders of that day, they're, they're very angry at this, and they're trying to, like, snuff out this fire that's in the city, you could say. And so there's a Christ follower by the name of Stephen. We don't know much about him. We just know he was the leader in the Jerusalem church. And, and, and basically, Stephen is confronted by the religious leaders, and they ask him, why do you believe that Jesus was who he said he was? And he gives this really articulate answer. I don't have time to talk about it, but it's a beautiful answer. You should read it at some point, this long exhortation on why he believes it. And then at the end of it, he kind of turns it against the religious leaders, and he says this. He goes, but you, religious leaders, you're blind. Jesus was walking amongst you, and you didn't acknowledge him as the Messiah or a God. Therefore, you are blind, and you are wrong, and you're living a lie, basically is what he's saying. This did not make religious leaders very happy. And so a riot breaks out. And it says this, that this riot broke out. I mean, so much anger in this moment. In Acts chapter 7, the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusations, and they shook their fists at him in rage. Have you ever, ever had somebody, like, shake their fists at you? They're so angry. I mean, this is how angry they are, right? But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing. Turn to the other person and say standing, standing, all right? Jesus standing. In fact, my title of my message today is Jesus is standing. Why, why, why? Jesus is standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Now, what's happening is these religious leaders are shaking their fists. Stephen gazes into heaven, sees a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and over here, there's this guy by the name of Saul watching it all, all right? Now, I want to give you a little bit of 
uh, maybe a little little theology here you maybe never, never knew before, and, and this is, this is mind-blowing. In the Bible, there are multiple times where it says Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. It says that he's seated. What is he doing? Well, he ascended to heaven, and the Bible says that he's seated at the right hand of God. And what is he doing? He's praying for us, the Bible says. You know that he prays for you daily? Jesus prays for you. He is your advocate. He is your defender, okay? So every single day, he's seated at the right hand of God, praying, advocating for you, and he sent his spirit to empower you, okay? So this is amazing. We have a God who's advocating and praying for us 24-7, seated at the right hand of God. This is the only place in the entire Bible, Acts chapter 7, the only place where it says that Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. Not seated, standing. Now, okay, you're at a sporting event. Your team is down there. They score a touchdown. They hit a home run. They score a goal, whatever it is, okay? What do you naturally do? You stand, right? You're seated. You're watching the game, but then you stand. Why do you stand? You stand because you are celebrating, you support, you cheer, could it be that the only mention of Jesus standing at the right hand of God is when he saw Stephen standing in the face of adversity? Oh, 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 let me even take that further. Could it be that Jesus stands when he sees you standing in your sickness? When he sees you standing in your financial hardship? When he sees you standing in your workplace? When he sees you standing in your school? Could it be that Jesus, who is the great advocate, the one that prays for us, literally stands to his feet when he sees you standing in the face of adversity? And he's cheering you on. And he's like, come on, Jeremy. Stand. Stand, Jeremy. In the midst of hardship, keep going, buddy. I'm with you. I am with you. Oh, I tell you what. We serve a God that stands when we stand. Have a seat just for a second because i got to wrap this. <laughs> oh, I'm telling you what. There's a God that stands, and Saul, who becomes Paul, later on writes in the New Testament, he writes this, when you've done all to stand, stand. Could it be that he was remembering that day many, many years before, when before he found Jesus, he saw a man of God stand in the face of adversity? Later on, he writes, when you've done everything to stand, stand. Why? Jesus stands with you. Every head bowed. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help my friends to stand. Oh, we need your strength. We're not going to be perfect. We're going to screw up. But Lord, at the end of the day, Lord, we want to be able to stand. The calling will cost us, but the calling will also sustain us. And I just pray that, God, you would stand with us and give us strength. Lord, thank you that you are with us, that you have overcome the world, that you've already conquered it, that we could have peace while we're standing in the face of adversity. With every head bowed and every eye closed, we're going to do something. I normally don't do this, but you know what? It's literally going to take us 60 seconds. If you today say, I want to make Jesus the leader and the forgiver of my life, every head is going to be bowed. I don't want anybody to look, okay? 
But you say today, I want to make Jesus the leader and the forgiver of my life. In fact, I, I want him to take away my sin. I believe he died for me. He rose from the dead. I want to have heaven as my home someday, but I want, I want Jesus with me. I want him to stand with me in my adversity. I want to stand with me in this life and become my very best friend. If that's you at every location and maybe even right now in your living room, if that's you, I want you just real quickly, no one's looking, I just want you to stand. I want you to stand. You want to make Jesus the leader and the forgiver of your life? Yes, people are standing. Anybody else? Stand, just stand. Just take a second. I mean, seriously, 60 seconds. Yeah, people are standing. No one's looking. There are people all over this auditorium, and I guarantee you at every single space. Now, church, I want us to do this. With your eyes closed, I want you to go ahead and stand because this is the thing. We're going to stand with you. We're going to stand with you. you. As you took a stand for Jesus, we as a church are going to come with you. And we're going to stand with you. Lord, I thank you for everybody that stood. And I thank you, God, that we as a church are going to stand with them. You saw every person. You are celebrating today. You, Lord Jesus, have saved people. And now, Lord, you want to become their very best friend. Let's just say this word together, all of us together, ready? This, this, this quick prayer. Jesus, become my leader. Forgive me of my sin. I want to stand for you. Thank you for dying for me and loving me with an unconditional love. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Come on, give up a huge round of applause.